0: I want you to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1, and I uh, want to share with you uh, what we've been studying in recent days uh, out of the book of Revelation. I was here in this book with you the last time that we were here. We've progressed a couple of verses, so you'll be excited about that. Um, introduce the book to you. We're going to be spending the, this week in um, uh, the first chapter, and we'll be spending it in verses uh, 12 down through verse 16, which has been uh, really significant material in my own life, uh, what John has been sharing. Uh, The context of the first chapter, again, is that it's an introduction, if you remember this from the last time we were here, that the first chapter is an introduction. And what that means is everything going on within the first chapter is for the purpose of introducing. In other words, uh, as John is writing, he's trying to prepare us for what we're going to encounter in the book itself. That's really significant. He's not just giving useless information. In fact, there's a lot of information that he could have included in this first chapter that I would have liked to have known, but it didn't have anything to do with what's going on within the prophecy. For example, he does not tell us how he wound up on the island of Patmos doesn't tell us any of those kind of physical circumstances. We know from tradition that he would he was put on trial, that he was boiled in oil, that they couldn't put him to death, that he went through horrible torture, he was banished from the rest of the church to this prison kind of Nazi training camp equivalent Island uh, on Patmos where there was just you didn't make it out of there alive see we know all of that from tradition but he doesn't include any of that in this first chapter because it doesn't have anything to do with the prophecy so this is really narrow now this tells us everything going on within the first chapter is really important for us to to get a hold of and study because it's pertinent for the for the book of Revelation itself uh, the first, he, uh, this first chapter has four sections. That means he's introduced four things to us. And I want to run those through, uh, run those by you just, just in passing. He's, he's, he's taking time to explain four things, introducing four things to us. The first thing he introduces is the prologue. Okay, it's the first three verses. If you have the NIV, you're going to note right above verse 1, there's a little, there's a little word in italics there that reads prologue. That's the first thing that he introduces. That's, a, that's kind of a statement, a, 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 an all-consuming, all-encompassing statement of the book of prophecy. That's the first three verses. The next thing that he introduces to us is the persons of our God. Okay, If you are a Christian, you serve one God in three persons. And his name, uh, or, or, or those three persons, are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he introduces those to us in verses 4 and 5a. Okay, there's a break there, a little paragraph break. So you have the prologue and the person section. Uh, verses 5b down through the end of verse 8 is the praise section. And that is uh, giving us uh, John's response to this person uh, who uh, is working and moving and acting in the book of Revelation, bringing about this plan uh, for our redemption. And and John just bursts forth in praise. And praise is a really significant aspect of the book of Revelation. And so he gives a whole section on that. Verses 9 down to the end of the first chapter is the Patmos section. So you have the prologue, persons, praise, Patmos. Verses 9 down through verse 20 is the Patmos section. And and this is uh, covering the situation in which he was in uh, when God comes, when Jesus comes and calls him uh, to write down everything that he saw. Within this Patmos section, verses 12 down through verse 16 is focused on Jesus. Here's how all this unfolds. Uh, In verse 9 of the Patmos section, John's talking about uh, he's using all this community language language. He's writing to these seven churches, expressing what they're going through. He's been going through. And that's what he talks about in verse 9. In verses 10 and 11 he expresses this call. In fact, that's what we looked at last night with the teens. Uh, There's this this unique calling that he receives uh, to write down everything he sees concerning this prophecy. Um, In verses 10 and 11, we learn that he's uh, on this unique day on on the island of Patmos. He hears this voice uh, behind him, which says, write on a scroll everything you see and send it to the seven churches. So he turns around in verse 12, and we have a lengthy description of who he sees, which of course, is Jesus. And that lengthy description is given from verse 12 down through verse 16, okay? Verses 17 through verse 20 is uh, kind of an uh, an interpretive uh, and commissioning little section there. But I want to spend this week with you in verses 12 down through verse 16, which is looking at this lengthy description of Jesus. It's really significant. And I want to look with you tonight at verses 12 and 13. I want to read that. I'm reading out of the NIV. And this is how it reads. John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. We'll look at that with you. Uh, all that language that he uses is really, it's, it's, it's heavy Old Testament kind of imagery language, okay? Anyone who had grew, uh, grown up a Hebrew or a Jew would have understood this imagery, okay? Because it, it, it talks about priests, it talks about lampstands, and all of that kind of imagery has to do with the temple or the tabernacle, okay? So he's using, he's using Old Testament imagery to describe what's taken place in a new covenant hour, Okay? So he's using old covenant language to describe what's taking place in a new covenant hour. Okay? And the first thing that he goes into detail about... Uh, is the lampstand which again Old Testament imagery Uh, if you go throughout the Old Testament if you have a concordance if you have a computer it's even better but if you have a concordance and you look up the word lampstand and you trace that throughout the Old Testament what you're going to find is that's talked about uh, uh, in a a lot of places Uh, most of the time within the Old Testament passages you're going to find that there's just one or sometimes maybe two lampstands that are referred to In in a a particular setting, okay, one or two lampstands, which is different than what we have here. See, in the New Covenant hour, and specifically in the Book of Revelation, how many lampstands are we dealing with? Not one, but seven. So there are seven lampstands. Okay, now the lampstand, uh, although they're different in number, in the in, in the Old Covenant you have one or two, in the New Covenant you have, or in the Book of Revelation you have seven. The 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 symbolic. Um, imagery for the lampstand is the same. In the Old Covenant, the lampstands represented Israel as they stood before God. In the New Covenant, the lampstands represent the churches, specifically the seven churches. And if you would look down at verse 20... He says the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven lampstands represent the seven churches specifically. And of course, we've been dealing with numbers and colors, which we'll talk more about tomorrow. But numbers and colors aren't literal in the book of Revelation. They're figurative. And so when he uses the number seven, that's not really a, a literal number. It's figurative, and it means whole or full. So the lampstands represent the full church, okay? So your church would be viewed by Jesus as a lampstand, okay? Now, so the lampstand, both in the Old Covenant and the book of Revelation, is, is consistent. It's, it's, it represents the people of God or the church, okay? How the lampstand functions or the purpose of the, of the lampstand is same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament as well. A lampstand was to hold up a lamp. Okay? That was its purpose. Now, in the book of Revelation, what you begin to find, and I want you to look at this with your own eyes, turn over with me to Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation chapter twenty-one, you see a paradigm for the church, and you know what I mean by paradigm. It's it's how things work within the body of Christ. It's it's how God has ordained the church to function. There is a paradigm of ministry uh, set forth by the church, and it's in Revelation chapter twenty-one, beginning at verse twenty-two. John is seeing this new Jerusalem being uh, being. Lower down out of the heavens. And he's, he's describing that. In verse 22, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So the temple is God. He is our temple. Okay? The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. So here's the purpose. The purpose of the church, the church is the lampstand, which holds up the lamp which gives the light. Okay, So in the book of Revelation, the church's number one role, I thought this was so neat, the church's number one role and the church's number one fun- function as a lampstand is to hold up the lamp who gives the light. So our number one ministry, our number one function as a body of Christ is to hold up the lamp who is Jesus. And He is the one that gives the light. See, He is the light of the world. And we're to hold Him up. I found it really significant that when you get into the book of Revelation, see, the churches, I mean, the only thing that God is concerned about is that we're talking about, that we're, 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 we're all about, wrapped up in Jesus, pushing Him on our world, holding Him up to our world. See, the number one role of the church is to hold up Jesus. Okay, That's the ministry of the church. See, the ministry of church is not a financial thing. I found it really uh, really significant that God doesn't really care about the details of the church. I don't think He has a preference on worship, personally. I don't think He has a preference on location, demographics. I don't think he cares what your building looks like. I don't, ca- I don't think he cares if you have diet sewed in the sanctuary. I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares about that. I don't think he cares what you wear to church. Okay, I won't bring that up anymore. Um, I don't. I don't think he cares about that stuff. See, the number one function and ministry of the church is to hold up Jesus. Yes. That's the role. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We're looking at this, of course, when Jesus, or excuse me, when John turns around, the first thing that he sees is he sees Jesus among seven golden lampstands. Okay, and the function of the lampstand, same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament, it's a ministry kind of a deal. And they are to hold up the lampstand in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the lampstand. That is the church's ministry. So when Jesus interacts with the church, when God views the church, he views your church as a lampstand. Are you holding up Jesus? Are you talking about Jesus? I was watching Fox News today. My wife was watching Fox News today, and I had to watch it. And they had this deal. She likes that Hannity's America stuff. And he was doing this series on beyond belief or something. And over in the Midwest, uh, upper Midwest, and I don't even know what you are, but uh, upper Midwest, especially in Indiana and Michigan, the housing market is horrible. And so what people are doing, and it made it to Fox News, is houses aren't moving, they aren't selling. So in order to do that, people are buying, you can get a kit, Of St. Joseph, the the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus. You get St. Joseph and you go out in your yard, you dig a hole. You have this kit, you dig a hole, you bury St. Joseph in your yard and he will help you sell your house. He'll help you sell your house. And so people are putting their faith, they're leaning on, they're trusting on St. Joseph. Now the issue isn't about whether or not Joseph is bad or whether he's good or what. It's just see, Jesus gets lost in all of that. I mean I mean, really, He gets lost in all of that. See, Jesus gets lost in coming to church on Sunday. Jesus gets lost in, I'm not bad. I tithe. I don't smoke, drink or chew, or go with girls who do. I don't lie. I don't have sex before marriage. I dress right. See, what if none of that means anything to him? The only thing that matters to him and the focus of the church is that we're all about him, we're lifting up him, we're wrapped up into him. See, that's the ministry of the church. Now, to show you that's true, one of the number one critiques of the very first church listed in chapter 2, of course, uh, uh, John says he turns and he sees Jesus walking among these seven golden lampstands. Well, then, Jesus addresses each one of those lampstands in chapters 2 and 3. The first one that he addresses is Ephesus, which tradition tells us is probably the largest church in this area. In fact, probably was the mother church of all these sister churches. Okay, That the other churches were birthed out of this church. It was the platform by which this was happening. Tradition suggests that. One of the things that Jesus says to this church is, is even though that it's the biggest, the brightest, the best, that kind of a deal. He says, you have forsaken, verse 4. Listen to what he says. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. See, you got wrapped up into all these things because Ephesus had the biggest gymnasium. They had the nicest praise band, best platform. They had the chairs with the round tables, coffee shop ministry. See, they had all that kind of stuff. Ephesus did. But in the midst of all of that, they left out him. And this is so significant that listen to what Jesus says. Remember the heights, verse 5, Remember the heights from which you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, listen to this, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? Well, he's going to come and take away your ministry. You can still meet together if you want to. doesn't say he's going to uproot the whole church. You can still meet together. You can still gather and sing songs. Have preaching. Have special special music. You can still have feedings to the community. So you can do all that. But I'm not showing up. I will take away your ministry because how Jesus sees the church is our number one focus. Our number one function is to lift up Jesus. That's phenomenal. So when John turns, the first thing that he sees in our passage is he sees Jesus that's in the midst of seven lampstands, okay? which is imagery from the church. So literally, when God views your church, see, I believe how he judges everything, how he sees everything, see, how he interacts with your church and, and how he speaks to your church, it's all with ministry kind of eyes. He's, I don't think he judges us on terms of in other words, I don't think we're going to get to heaven and, and God's going to say, wow, you did great, but you only ran 100. This church ran 25,000. I don't think he sees it that way, biblically. I mean, there's nothing wrong with running 25,000. My check would be better, for one. But um, the big deal is, is that he's not concerned. That was a joke. Um, the big deal is, is he's not concerned with numbers, man. He's not concerned with numbers. See, are you lifting up Jesus? Number one ministry. Now, of course, when he's talking about the lampstands, uh, he moves on to Jesus being in the midst of those lampstands. And he begins to describe him. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then he says this. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But he describes this Son of Man, and he says, he's, which we know is Jesus, uh, from later on in the passage, he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, there's two possibilities that this could be. Okay? It is a sign of either royalty or the priesthood. It really could be either one. Okay? So what John could be describing is uh, someone in kingly attire or someone in priestly attire. It could go either way. Due to the context of the passage, we're dealing with a priest because kings did not deal with lampstands. Okay? Kings did not deal with lampstands. A priest did. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, okay, the imagery that John is using is that of a temple or a tabernacle kind of imagery, and you have these lampstands, and the purpose of the lampstands, the... the um, the imagery of the lampstands is they were, they were to represent Israel as they stood before God, just like in the book of Revelation, the lampstand represents the church as it stands before God. The function of the lampstand was ministry. See, it literally was to hold up the light. In the Old Testament, the light was the Holy Spirit. You get that out of Exodus and out of Daniel and out of Numbers and Zechariah, all that kind of in- imagery. In the New Testament, the, the, in the book of Revelation, the lampstand is to hold up the lamp, which is Jesus. Okay, now the priest, okay, was the one who came and tended the lampstands and the lamps. They would make sure that the lamps were full with the right amount of oil, that the wicks were trimmed, all of that kind of deal. That was the old covenant, uh, old covenant imagery. When you come into the book of Revelation, <laughs> there's a little bit of a problem because, see, Jesus, as the high priest presented in our passage with the, with the priestly attire, see he, doesn't, see, he doesn't trim the lamps, he is the lamp. So he doesn't, see, he doesn't fill the oil, which is the Holy Spirit. See, he's, he's filled with the oil. See, he doesn't trim the wick. See, that's, he is the lamp. And in our passage, it seems like Jesus is really, really concerned. Are you with me? He's really, really concerned about the ministry of the lampstands. See, the lamp, he's the lamp. So Jesus is constantly among, in the language that's used in verse 12, when it says, uh, or verse 13, and among the lampstands, that's a a present participle, which means he's continually among, he never leaves, he's always there. So when he's always there among the lampstands, see his entire focus is not on the lamp, because he's the lamp, it's on the lampstand as if, are you lifting me up? See, that's your purpose. Are you lifting me up? So he's really concerned with the lampstand deal. Okay? He's really concerned with the lampstand. Now, uh, I've been playing around with writing, and I was hoping to have the book almost done by January, and I'm way behind. But uh, I found writing difficult. I thought writing would be a piece of cake because preaching is a piece of cake. You just stand up and talk a lot. It's more than that. But uh, it came fairly easy for me. But writing is altogether different than speaking and certainly preaching. In fact, um, I got an ad like two or three editors and they all hate me. And uh, I submit my book, my chapter to them. And they all say the same thing: you write like a preacher, <laughs> which means I can't write. And so, and I say I can't help it. You know, I majored in shop in high school, not creative writing. I mean, I could build a birdhouse, but you know that doesn't help with like you know ending sentences and prepositional phrases and all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm learning how to write now. One of the things that they're telling me is that when you're a writer, okay, uh, you want to use the same amount of the same kind of language. The same kind of terms. You don't want to jump from term to term to term talking about the same thing. Okay? Throughout the book, you want to use the same kind of language, the same kind of term, and it'll string all your thoughts together. Okay? That's one of the things. So as I've been practicing that, I pick up where people who, other people who write don't do that. Did I say that right? I pick up where other people are writing, I watch how they don't do that. They don't apply that principle. And one of the places that I'm finding where that principle is lacking is in Scripture specifically in the book of Revelation. See, the whole paradigm of ministry in the book of Revelation, how God views us, is that we are a lampstand who holds up Jesus, who teaches about who God is. That's the paradigm of ministry. We are a lampstand, He is the lamp, it gives the light. So that would be the language it would use throughout the whole book of Revelation. Now, in the beginning of the very book, we know that we got that from Revelation chapter 21. It's talked about throughout the whole book. In the first chapter, we have the talk of a lampstand. But instead of the lampstands holding up a lamp, he inserts this phrase, son of man. See, it would have been helpful if John turned to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was a lamp. That would have been consistent. That would have made sense. But he doesn't do that. He says, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, which again, that's Old Testament imagery for a human being. John did not mistake him for an angel because he sees all kinds of angels in the book of Revelation. So he didn't mistake him as an angel. He wasn't a ghost, wasn't a spirit, was an apparition. He says, when I turned, it was like I saw a man. A human being walking among the seven golden lampstands. He uses the word like because he's never quite seen one like this. Never seen one like this. Okay. This is, wow, this is resurrected Jesus, resurrected Lord kind of human being. But he's a human being. Now Jesus, now get this. Jesus, that's really strong in the passage. Jesus is presented as a man because he is the high priest. Okay? He is the priest that's serving in the temple in the heavenlies. See, he is tending the candle, the, the, the lampstands. See, he's tending, he's speaking to the churches. See, his ministry is to the church. And he, the, the language of son of man, it's, it's our kind of language. See, as you and I are sons of men, he is a son of man. So Jesus is able to critique, he's able to minister to us as the priest was able to minister in the Old Testament to the lamps and keep them all running. Jesus is able to do the same thing to us primarily in the passage because he was one of us. That's really important. See, Jesus is able to minister to you in the church because he lived like you lived. One of the things we're finding, this is real big, one of the things I'm finding in the church And it's difficult to talk about, but it's, it's almost when, you, when people talk in the church, not the world, in the church, people tend to refer to Jesus or talk about Jesus like he is an alien. Mm. I mean, really. Mm. Uh, they talk about him like he's superhuman. Uh, they talk about him like he lived in a way that you and I can't live. Okay? They tend to talk about him uh, as being God. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. But Jesus was God who came down and was born like you and I was born and identified with us. This is big for you, for you teens. This is big for me. Jesus literally came and limited himself to live as you and I lived. Jesus came down and took on emotions, which God does not have. Jesus had those. Jesus wept. Jesus came and literally became vulnerable, like you and I are vulnerable. He, he made himself available to be tempted. And God can't be tempted. So Jesus came and suffered, like you and I suffered. Jesus came, it's a big one, Jesus came and lived as a man requiring sleep. He aged like you and I age. In other words, Jesus came, and we know from Scripture, that he was born without sin, which is a relational issue between God and himself. There's no sin in between he and God. But he was born in a sinful body. In other words, he was born in a sin-scarred body. He wasn't born Superman. He aged. He got tired. He felt pain. He woke up in the morning and goes, oh, my aching back. <laughs> Probably. Um, see, he had all of that kind of stuff. Um, there were certain things. See, he's a son of man. See, he came and lived the way that you and I lived. and. See, all the things that would differentiate himself from us, he, he left aside. In other words, however, whatever would make him different than you and I, he said, I'm not going to have that. Um, there are three things that, are seem, that seem to be always talked about when you describe God in the, in the, in the Bible. There are three certain qualities. We, we talk about them as these omni qualities. they are omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresent. Okay? God has those. Man does not have those. God has those. And you probably if you've been around church long enough, you've heard them. Um, The Bible talks about God as being omnipresent. Which means what? God is everywhere at the same time. God is everywhere at the same time. As a man, Jesus did not have that. If he wanted to identify with you and I, Jesus could not have that. He had to be nailed at one place at one time. If he wanted to go from Galilee to Judea, he had to foot it like you and I foot it. There is nowhere in the Bible where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we're going to go to Galilee, and I'm already there. That's not in the Bible. He had to foot it there. In fact, we have one record in John chapter 4 when he was going from Judea back up to Galilee and they passed through Samaria and he's so wore out he has to take a break. He was tired. Jesus was not omnipresent. He was still God, but he was God that came down and became the incarnate man. He took on the limitations of flesh. Uh, He was not omniscient. Jesus did not know all things. He had to rely on the knowledge that you and I rely on. In other words, hey, how, how do I know and how do I perceive? Through discernment and revelation of the Holy Spirit, Jesus did the same thing. And one of the plain examples of that in Scripture is where the disciples ask Him when He's coming back. and What does He say? Beats me. He says, not the, the angels do not know, nor any man, but only the Father. I don't even know, he says. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus was not all powerful. In fact, the miracles that he did, I want you to turn over with me. And I want you to see this for yourself if you'd be willing. I want you to turn over with me to uh, the book of Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost. And he's talking to the crowd about Jesus and who he is. (laughs) You think I'm... I've had people come up to me. I had a lady come up to me at uh, Muncie First Church of the Nazarene, a sweet lady. And she says, everything you said was right, but all of it bothered me. And I said, well, that's, that's odd. How do you work through that? She says it's right, but I don't like it. <laughs> what's, what's that mean? You know? She says because I grew up all my life believing the opposite. And I said, you think I'm aggressive? Listen to how Peter talks about Jesus in Jesus' sermon, or in, in Peter's sermon in the opening statements. He doesn't mention at all that Jesus is God. Never even mentions it. Does he believe it? Obviously, he believes it. He says it. You're the only. You're the son of God. He believes it. But hey, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a man. Listen now. Peter says it in uh, chapter two, verse twenty-two. Listen. This is incredible. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. He was a man. He was a son of man. He was a human being. He had emotions like you had emotions that had to come underneath the authority of the Holy Spirit. He had a sex drive that had to come underneath the authority of the Holy Spirit. He had aspirations. He had dreams. He had all the kinds of things that you and I have and lived a life in absolute, total obedience to the Father and demonstrated how you and I are to live. See, if you and I looked at Jesus and said, well, yeah, he was sinless. Yeah, he was a man just like me, but he was God. So, I mean, hey, he's God, so who can be God? That would be an excuse for you and I. But if he came and lived the life that you and I were supposed to live out of the same resource that we have at our fingertips, this is what he says. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man, get this, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Hey, how did all the miracles take place? God. God. As God moved through Jesus, Jesus wants to move through us. Which means Jesus walked around the world and his number one ministry was to hold up the Father. You and I are lampstands which are to walk around the world and hold up him. In Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses that show up in Jerusalem and preach. In that passage... Jesus calls them. They are the angel. Uh, uh, John is seeing them, and he says, "Who are they?" And the angel says, "These are the these are God's lampstands." Which means, what's their ministry? They go in the middle of Jerusalem and hold up Jesus for three days. And anyone says anything, anything to them, boom, they catch on fire. Wouldn't it be great? It'd be awesome. You'd never fall asleep in church again. <laughs> Poof, ball of smoke over there. But their number one ministry is to hold up Jesus. So now put this together in the passage. John turns around and he sees a man, just like you and I, okay, whose ministry on this earth was to hold up the Father. And he's able to critique and minister to the church because as the church is to hold up Jesus, he held up the Father. And he's able to help us in every possible way. See, he's able to minister to us. In fact, the New Testament is really strong, I found, that the New Testament is really strong about how we are weak. He himself suffered in that weakness. You'd say, what do you mean Jesus suffered in that weakness? Do you realize that just like you and I make mistakes, Jesus made mistakes? Jesus never sinned, but there's a difference between sin and mistakes. See, if I went out this afternoon and cheated on my wife, and then came to church and said, well, that was a mistake, what would you say? (laughs) No, that's not a mistake. See, a mistake, forgive me for the language, is bonehead male kind of stuff. If you're a male, probably, you do bonehead things. Does bonehead offend you? <laughs> yeah, it's very practical. Okay, it's we're males. We we don't always get it right. We say the wrong things. You think Jesus did that? Is it okay to say that Jesus was a? Let's don't use male. Let's use teenager. Everyone would agree that teenagers, at time to time, do bonehead things. Would you agree? except you four. The rest of them. (laughs) Teenagers do things without thinking. You think Jesus did that? He was without sin, which is a motivation. But you think He ever just... Look with me at Luke chapter 2 real quickly. It's one of my favorite passages. My uh, cousin is 12. Not my cousin, excuse me. My nephew is 12. And he's maturing, he's starting to grow up, but he's just, he's a bonehead, man. He does things without thinking. And you think, why don't you think? He's 12. He really is 12. Jesus is 12. <laughs> it's an interesting story. You know how the story goes. Uh, Mary and Joseph come down with the whole group of people from their town, worship at the tabernacle, okay? worship at the temple for the Passover. Passover ends, the whole group gets together, they head back. Somehow Jesus departs from the company, slipped into the temple, got carried away. Not bad, not evil, responding to the Father, wrapped up into the Father. Just wow. Not thinking, as a 12-year-old doesn't think, but hey, wrapped up and not sinning. Family leaves town. And due to the language, you realize it wasn't, that, it wasn't that they were bad parents and left him. He deliberately went into the temple and stayed behind. Listen to the language. Verse 41, chapter 2. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, uh, meaning every year, in other words, he was familiar with the whole deal. Uh, when he was 12 years old, uh, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. It, see, the, notice the language. They didn't leave him. He stayed behind. It's really important grammar. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So one day out, can't find Jesus. Making hot dogs, Jesus is not picking up his hot dog. So they spend how many they go out one day, so how many days they come back one day verse forty five when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him, and after three days, they found him in the temple. so one day out, one day back, three days a week can 't find Jesus anywhere, probably rush to the temple pray can 't find the boy. you know it 'd be bad to lose the messiah that would't be a good thing. So verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking the questions. And of course, 40, verse 47 tells us how uh, just astonished, how just they were blown away by his insights. Listen to verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now that's not like, wow, isn't this neat? <laughs> that's not that word, astonished. That's the kind of thing that if you're a teenager... You drop them off the church, they show up a week later at someone else's house. It's that kind of astonished? That's what you're feeling. His mother said to him, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. <laughs> and of course, Jesus is, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And most translations leave out in the Greek where, where Mary says, Father's house, my foot, you're grounded. That's, uh, that's, in between, that's in between verses 49 and 50. Verse 50 says, But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now listen to this. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient. The Greek word therefore was is the Greek word genomai, which is not translated was, it's translated became. So he went down to Nazareth and became obedient. In other words, he wasn't living in sin. He was all wrapped up in the Father and got carried away with that and said, oops, sorry about that. Got carried away. And then responded to his parents. He became obedient to them. And listen, now it goes on. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He grew. I think Jesus was just like you and I. He never said no. I was at a church and I preached this and a lady came up to me and talked to me about her eight-year-old who one of the kids in her class had to walk home after Wednesday night church, which is about a mile. And she was so distraught that this girl would have to walk home, she just thought that it was the Christian thing to do to walk home with her. Mom says, what do I do? Do I spank her? It was a great heart thing. It was a bonehead, bonehead kind of activity, but as my love for Jesus. I got carried away and I didn't think about the response. I didn't think about the... See, the picture that we have, John, see John knew this, the picture that we have is that John turns around, he sees seven golden lampstands, that's you and I, our number one ministry is to hold up who he is. And Jesus is the one that's among, he's the priest. See, he tends us, he ministers to us, he speaks to us, he works in our lives. Why? Because he was one of us. So I believe what that means is the number one thing that Jesus is going to talk to you and I about are not the mistakes kind of stuff. I really don't think that's what He's concerned about. See, I think the number one kind of thing that He's going to talk to us about in our life and in our church is where are you not lifting me up? See, where are you not talking about me? Where do you not look like me? Uh... Rick and I were talking about this on the way up to, uh, on the, way up to uh, the teen uh, lock-in. and I had probably in the top three or four spiritual experiences of my life this last Christmas. And it had to do with what Jeremiah looks like when he gets out of the pulpit. I'm on the road 50 weeks a year. When I get out of the pulpit for those other two weeks, I don't know what to do. And I've struggled with that. And the Lord's really convicted me, really convicted me about that. Because it's not like I run out and, and live in this raging, sinful lifestyle. It's just on the road, I'm all about lifting Him up. When I'm off the road, we have such a, a purposeful, I mean, just pulling away from and that I found myself not Lifting him up. It all started, we went to Grandma's house, about 20 of us there. I'm was the. I'm always the cut up, hang out, laugh. You probably never would believe that. But uh, just a riot, everybody's laugh, having a good time. At the end of the night, she leaned over to me and said, oh, We had so much time, bad time having here. Would you pray for us? And I was under immediate conviction because I had to, in my mind, shift gears. And if you have to shift gears, where did you shift gears from? See, no one looked at me and said, Well, he's living in sin. No. But how do you define sin? I wasn't. And I'm funny in the pulpit, I'm funny throughout the year. See, there's, do, you see the, do you see the inconsistency there? He's been dealing me on that. Where do you not look like him? Your job? Your marriage? Your friendships? Entertainment choices? Thursday night, 11 o'clock on the computer? See, I think that's what he's concerned about. Honestly. I don't think he's concerned about color of carpet stuff, uh, what you wear to church. Uh, Don't read me wrong. We're going to talk about this on Sunday, but I'm not even sure he's concerned with how much you give. I think he's concerned with are you walking around holding me up? Because I want to know you on that. Because he's been where we've been. He's been tired like we've been tired. He's been hungry like we've been he been tempted like we've been tempted. <laughs> Forgive me. He's made bonehead mistakes like you and I have made bonehead mistakes. I believe that. The book of Isaiah says there was no beauty nor majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't the best looking. Hit the softball the hardest. That wasn't. The number one thing about him is he just wow lifted up the Father. Jesus, we love you this evening and uh, I'm really taken with what John saw. The thing that he writes, the thing that he really gets wrapped up in, the first thing that he saw is, he's just like me. He was a man, a man wrapped up though in ministry, holding up the Father. I want to give You, Jesus, permission to do what You want to do tonight in my life, which is what You're doing in the book of Revelation. You want to tend me. You want to, I believe, even rebuke me. You want to caress. You want to hold. You want to guide. You want to lead. So You've been where I've been. You've lived where I've lived. And You've been speaking to me about holding You up to your world. You haven't been speaking to me about, you know, performing. You haven't been speaking to me about how well I do this, or how well I do that. See, you've been speaking to me about holding you up. See, what am I talking about? What do I get excited about? What am I driven by? What is my mind filled with? I, I, I don't think you want me to vacation from that. That's not just like a Sunday and Wednesday kind of a thing. That was how I was created to be. See, I'm the body, I'm the church. And it's so easy, Jesus, to slip into the religious mode of of service and doing good deeds and burying St. Joseph's in my yard and getting all wrapped up in the religious tapestries of life. And really what You desire is for us to lift You up. See, that's my ministry. I hold You out to my world. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. And uh, It's New Year's, and man, I just, honestly, I tell you, I feel like I'm, I'm different. I feel like years have went by since 2008. <laughs> I woke up feeling different today. My wife and I are talking to each other different. Because I need to hold up Jesus. And I want that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight and we just want to gather around the altar and there's not going to be a time frame on this or limit or anything like that. I just kind of want to pray a little bit tonight and, and um, I'm going to come back up and dismiss this in a few minutes. But teens if you want to seek, adults if you want to seek, we just really want to, um, want to be used and stretched by him tonight. Uh, Father, we want to gather around the altar this evening and speak to you and, and have you speak to us and give you opportunity to just shape us. Uh, we want to be the lampstand that holds you up to our world. Uh, we want to be the kind of church that's not concerned with the peripherals of uh, big steeples and, and uh, nice large parking lots and gymnasiums. And all those things are wonderful, but uh, we want to be the kind of church that holds you up. Uh, you're our banner. You're our theme. You're our song. It seems like we talk a lot about holiness in the Church of the Nazarene. And of course, Jesus, uh, you are holy. But I, I don't want to talk about holiness. I want to talk about Jesus. You are my holiness. You are my banner. You're my, see, you're my song. We want to get wrapped up into you, a holy God. And we give you all the praise tonight. Speak to us.